Uh, Father, thank you so much again for your son Jesus who gave himself for us that we might die to sin and live to you. We thank you. And uh, we thank you that you use your word to grow us in the grace and knowledge of your son. That you've given us your precious and magnificent promises. And so, Lord, I pray as we look into your word today that you would use it in our hearts as you desire, as you intended, and that we would respond as you desire so that you would be glorified. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the evangelical church has gone through quite a paradigm shift in the last 30 years. Uh, really a paradigm shift of titanic proportions, if you look at it. Uh, it's so extensive that the term evangelical, you know, always had been synonymous with true believers, but now it really seems to have a wider meaning. Indeed, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being perverted by felt-need, seeker-sensitive charlatans who have crept into the church widely unnoticed, and evangelical churches are now populated with spiritually emaciated or many so-called believers, sadly, whose emphasis is on their temporal needs and wants. And these so-called and disobedient pastors feed their congregations uh, flesh, attempting to meet their needs week after week through felt-need sermons rather than uh, preaching the word, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with great patience and instruction. But do these sermons that they preach give you what you really need? What is it that we need as believers? Well, today we begin a new series in 2 Thessalonians. We finished 1 Thessalonians. And as we start, we're going to look at a simple greeting, a salutation. And in that, I believe we're going to see what we as believers really need. That we're going to see that we need on a continual basis the Lord himself, but within that, his grace and his peace daily. That's what we need. The reality is this life is full of trouble. This life is full of trials. It's temporal. And we have the promise of eternity with no more tears, sorrow, pain. But yet we are in the time in which we have difficulty. What is it we need? Well, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. And if you're not already there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 today. But I want to read through the first chapter. And I encourage you to read through all three chapters. They're very short uh, this week as we prepare to study this book. One of the things I do whenever I begin a study of a book is I study the whole book very thoroughly first before I study the pieces. And so be reading through the book and looking at it. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's what we're going to look at today. And you think, well, we'll be done pretty quick. Well, there's a lot of really good stuff that we'll see in the Lord. But let's keep reading. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love for each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions to which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his, of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among those, among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. 
in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's just the first chapter, and that's wonderful. And so as we begin, uh, we need to, in this beginning of the study, I want to share some context. I want to briefly share the historical context, which is not really that important. Now, the biblical context is, but just for your knowledge and understanding. And as we begin this book, you'll find that the context is really the same context as was for First Thessalonians. Because we're going to see that these two letters were written within months of each other. And there's some similarities that we're going to see about it. So what do we know about the Thessalonians historically? What do we know about the city that they were in? Well, the city, Thessalonica, was originally named Therma. It had a lot of hot springs. And sometime around 315 B.C., it was renamed to Thessalonica uh, after the half-sister of Alexander the Great married Cassandra. And her name was Salonica, and so it was named that. Or it became, excuse me, became known as Salonica. And it's one of the only biblical cities that, one of the few that still exists today. You could go there. Thessaloniki, it's, it's there right now. Now, uh, Thessalonica was conquered by Rome in 168 BC, and it was made the capital of the entire province of Macedonia. Now, at the time of this writing, uh, it's probably, it's, it's thought that there was probably around 200,000, uh, people in Thessalonica. Uh, mostly uh, Romans but uh, and, and Greeks, excuse me, mostly Greeks, but there was a large Roman and a small vocal Jewish community. Now Thessalonica was some 50 miles west of Philippi, about 100 miles north of Athens, and so its location contributed to its importance, and that helps us understand things. It was probably one of the greatest cities on the entire Ignatian Road that was a great Roman military highway that connected Rome with the, with the east and ran right through Macedonia parallel to the Aegean Sea. And so indeed, because of its location, Thessalonica was a wealthy city, as are, were most uh, major metropolitan areas. And within that, as with most metropolitan areas, there was a reputation for evil and licentiousness. So that's just historical stuff. But here, biblically, what do we know about Thessalonica? What do we know about the Thessalonians? Well, we see in uh, Acts chapter 16 that Silas, Timothy, and Dr. Luke were with the Apostle Paul on what we call his second missionary journey. And that was around 49 A.D. And having come from the east, they were kept by God from going south to Asia, as Luke would write in Acts 16.6, having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then they were kept from going north to Turkey, as Luke shares again, verse 7 of Acts 16. They were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of God, Jesus, did not permit them. God was directing them. God was directing them. This is when the word of God was expanding and the church was being uh, built up. So when God in his sovereignty led them, Paul, uh, Silas, Timothy, and Dr. Luke, led them, we see, west, and passing through Mysia, they came to Troas. And as they were waiting there, they received their marching orders, Paul did, in a vision, Acts 16, 9, and 10. They were to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. So the apostle Paul and his companions left in obedience for Europe, to preach the gospel, crossing the Aegean Sea, and they went on to Philippi. Now we know in Acts chapter 16, we see the first European converts, where Paul shares the gospel to Lydia and a group of women at the river. And then we see, after being imprisoned, uh, Paul shares the gospel to the Philippian jailer and his household. And in a few weeks, the nucleus for the Philippian church was formed, Lydia, the jailer, and their households. And it's at this point after having been treated shamefully by the Philippian magistrates, uh, they were released, or they released Paul, and he, and they begged him to leave Philippi. So Paul and his companions journeyed then some 50 miles west to Thessalonica. And this is probably in the winter of 49 AD. So in Acts chapter 17, uh, we see and find the account of the conversion of the Thessalonians and the birth of the Thessalonian church. We also see that in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Look with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. And I want to read through this. Acts 17. 
Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Hey, the people came to faith there. We see that in First Thessalonians, by the way. They heard the word of God. They accepted it not as the word of man, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, but the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. And it says, but then, verse 5, but the Jews becoming jealous taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, hey, sounds like the cities these days, right? Um, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the whole world have come here also. And Jason welcomed them. And they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. See, they're proclaiming Christ. That means the king, the king of kings. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And then look at Acts 18 here. And actually, no, I'm sorry. Let's, let's stay in, in 17. I want to finish it. Look at verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. Now those are the Jews, not the, the many God-fearing Greeks and the, those. They came to faith, right? But the Jews here in, Thessal, in, uh, in Berea were more noble-minded. He says here, um, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. Isn't that wonderful? Many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women, men and women. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out about the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted now those who conducted Paul brought him out as far as Athens and as and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as po- soon as possible they departed Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens his spirit uh, was being provoked within him as he was beholding a city full of idols and then we have the Mars Hill portion Now go to chapter 18 chapter 18 so after these things, and that was calling them to repent, those uh, at Mars Hill, because God's fixed a day in which he's going to judge, he declares to all men everywhere that they should repent. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So the Apostle Paul had been sharing the word in Thessalonica, and he was driven out, or he had to leave, driven out by those Jews. So the church came to faith. We see that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. And Paul was there within only about three weeks of time, and he left. And so Paul ultimately is in Athens and he sends Timothy back to the Thessalonians because he's concerned about their faith. He's concerned. Look back in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, Paul's concerned about them. This helps us understand what's going because it's, it's pretty close to the same timing just a few months later, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager, 217, all the more eager with desire to see your face. 
For I wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope and joy and crown of exaltation? Is it not even you at the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to the faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. Now, they were suffering. We're going to see this in our book. Remember that. They were suffering afflictions for following Christ. Disturbed by the affliction, we're going to disturbed by these afflictions, he says, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, and it was only a short time, when we were with you, he says, we kept telling you in advance that you were going to suffer affliction, and so as it came, it came to pass, as you know, uh, for this reason, I, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought good, as good news of your faith and love so that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So after having sent Timothy, Timothy comes back and gives Paul a good report Paul is then in, then in uh, Corinth waiting for that. And so being in Corinth, Paul received the report, and he writes 1 Timothy as his response. As his response. And first, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, not 1 Timothy. He writes 1 Thessalonians as his response. Now that was written, as we see, during his 18-month stay in Corinth, which was sometime between 50 and 51 A.D., it appears it's more so the spring of 50 A.D. that he did so, that he was responding pretty quickly after he had left and Timothy had brought that report. So when did he write his second letter, the one that we're looking at? As I mentioned before, it appears that Paul wrote this from Corinth. Well, how can I say that? Look now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says in verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ or Paul and Silvanus, and, excuse me, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, right? And there we see that Paul is still with Silvanus and Timothy. And so as we look at Scripture, that points to the reality that this must have been written very closely to when he had written 1 Thessalonians. It's just a couple months afterwards. And as we're going to see, there was some disturbing things that were happening that concerned Paul. So the Apostle Paul wrote another letter inspired by the Spirit for the benefit of these Thessalonians. <coughs> Indeed, we're going to see in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians that these Thessalonians were trusting Jesus. They were loving one another. Real evidence of faith. But they were being persecuted. They were afflicted greatly. And they were afflicted so greatly that they had been tempted, chapter 2, by someone who had written a letter as if from Paul, but it wasn't from him. It was a false letter, and that the day of the Lord had come. The stuff you're going through is the day of the Lord. And so these Thessalonians who are waiting for Jesus are confused. We're suffering so greatly, how could it be the day of the Lord? Christ is supposed to come take us first. Did we miss that? And so the Apostle Paul has to encourage them in their persecutions, but chapter 2 revealed that the day of the Lord will not come unless these things have come, and it hasn't come yet, so you're okay. The next thing on God's clock for you is Jesus coming for you to take you away before, because you're not destined for wrath, but salvation in Jesus Christ. And so that's chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, um, after encouraging them and requesting prayer from the Lord for protection from evil, Paul relays his confidence that these Thessalonians are obeying and will continue to obey. And then he leads, uh, a, shares one last-minute issue with them because there were some people in the body that were not obeying the Word of God. And more specifically, they were focused on spiritual stuff, but they weren't doing what they were called to do, like work. And they were being a burden to the rest of the body. And so the Apostle Paul has to address them in the chapter 3 that they should follow his example. They worked for their own food. They didn't have to, but they did. 
and in chapter 3, remind them of the instruction that he gave them in that very small time that they were new believers. If anyone will not work, let him not eat. And do not associate with anyone who's disobeying the commands that they would be shamed, but yet love them as a brother. So there's some very strong commands there because of some sin that was in the Thessalonian church. And so that's why he writes the book. He writes the book because he's heard of that false letter, a false message from him that he has to correct. And they're struggling because they're waiting for Jesus and they're thinking and they're suffering that the day of the Lord has come and they've missed his coming. They've missed his coming for them. And then there's some sin. So that's what we see here, why this book is written. But there's so many wonderful things for us because the reality is we're going to suffer too if you follow Jesus. And we're going to live in the context of persecution before Jesus comes. But he will make it right. The ladies are going through this right now in the book of James. Wait, the patient farmer waits. You're suffering. It seems like they're getting away with it. They're not going to get away with it. The judge is right at the door. Right at the door. Now, so with that in mind, I want to share just a couple applications to even what we've seen so far. But before I do that, another thing is I, when I look through a book and I study it, I look for repeated words. Not that the repeated word means anything of itself, but why is it repeated? What's the context? And in these three short chapters, as I studied this, we have the term Christ mentioned once. We have the term Lord mentioned ten times. We have the phrase Lord Jesus mentioned three times. We have uh, he himself or him referring to Christ nine times. And then we have the phrase Lord Jesus Christ nine times. This book is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we always want to personalize it and make it about us. Yes, it does talk about us, but in the context of the Lord and what he wants for us, which is he wants his grace and peace to rule in our hearts. He wants us to see our circumstances rightly. He wants us not to be deceived by false messages. He wants us to obey. And so that's what we see here. So from this background, what can we uh, apply to our lives? First of all, there's a really evil thing going on in churches these days that new believers can't lean very much, and you've got to give them the baby stuff. No, Paul shared deep doctrinal and scriptural truth with these Thessalonians. He, he talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 1, and he talks about it here. Remember when I was with you? In the first three weeks of their salvation, he taught them the truth about how they're to walk with Christ and the persecution that would come and the obedience they should have in certain areas of their life as they wait for their Lord Jesus Christ. So we should be learning biblical truth. New converts can learn and should be, and we all should be doing that. You see, if we have the right heart towards God's word, we can learn. You know, I had people well-meaning but very sinful and wrong, by the way, when I taught at an old folks' home back in the Bay Area. They said, you can't teach that way. They're not here. They're not going to hear it. They're not going to understand. Well, maybe they didn't understand right away, but I just kept teaching the Word of God the way I feel the Lord wants us to teach, to preach the Word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience. And the believers there began to grow in their faith over time. The reality is Satan doesn't want the word to go out, so he uses man's wisdom to thwart that through evil men and imposters that have crept into the church. So with that in mind, we need to recognize it all comes down to our heart attitude. Maybe the reason why some of these new believers aren't growing and they, should, they don't want to have the food is because they've got a bad heart attitude. Maybe they haven't even come to faith. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2 because we see the attitude that we should have towards the word of God. The attitude that we should have as believers, as believers. Proverbs chapter 2, right after the Psalms. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you. That's seeing value in it. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. I want to learn. I want to learn about you, Lord Jesus. I want to learn your word. I want to learn your will. Incline your heart for understanding. For if you cry for discernment, that's the ability to have discretion, to make right judgments in the Lord. Lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, if you search for her as hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. you got a lot of babies in church who are rebellious and in sin and they can't receive the word because their hearts aren't right. And so evil pastors lower it down rather than addressing the sin so that they would be right with the Lord and have a right 
desire for the Word of God. He says, Then you'll discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes understanding, knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. But yet, if you're a believer and you're still having trouble, just only wanting baby truths and not uh, responding, maybe something's wrong. Maybe something's wrong. Maybe you were stillborn. Maybe you weren't born again. Or maybe you are starving. Hebrews chapter 5. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. The apostle writing to the Hebrews reproves these believers because time sufficient has gone by for them to know the word of God and be able to discern it. And I tell you, there's nothing worse than talking to somebody. How long have you been a Christian? 69 years or 33 years or whatever. And they don't even see Christ rightly in their daily walk because they're dulled down by their own sin. They can't discern between good and evil, even in the church. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. He's talking about Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to give the context to Hebrews, but he says concerning him. He says, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. Something's wrong. Your ears are hardened. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. He's speaking to all the believers there. You have again need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. That's the word of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who uh, because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching of Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now, you never leave it from leaving it. You just build upon it, basically. But I build upon it every day. So the Thessalonians, they left the elementary teachings. Paul, in a very short time, was sharing deep truth with the Thessalonians, and he didn't—he expected them to understand it. And in 2 Thessalonians, he's expecting to hold them to that truth because they're true believers, and they're able to obey by the power of Christ. So how can we apply this to our lives? Well, the Apostle Paul had a great concern for the growth and spiritual well-being of the church, which reveals that God has the same concern. And so God has a concern for us. He has a concern for our growth. He has a concern that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's gracious and he's kind. And with anything and every sin and every situation that's wrong or bad, all we need to do is humble ourselves and just admit it. And we're set free. We're set free. We're forgiven. Confess your sin. He's faithful to forgive you. You've been a believer for a long time. You're still a baby Christian. Something's really wrong. Examine your heart. Examine your heart. And then start growing again. And grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. You see, because if you truly repent... A worldly sorrow brings about death. And you see people who realize they're sin of worldly sorrow, but a godly sorrow leads to repentance without regret. Praise the Lord. He's revealed my sin. I'm going to trust him and move forward. What a great God I have. What a great God. Okay, so with that in mind, what do we really need? Let's begin our study of Second Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, we have the same greeting we have as in 1 Thessalonians, which leads me to believe and others, especially that the three are together, that this is really close to the time the first book was written. He's heard some disturbing news and he has to write them back right away. He's heard some disturbing news. And as I said, it has to have happened during that 18-month uh, time in Corinth. And it has to have happened while Paul, Samas, and Timothy were still together. Still together, because Paul's going to go off on his own after Corinth. So it had to happen there. So we have the exact same greeting, and then we have the author identified, Paul. And this is the Apostle Paul. And he mentions uh, Savannah and Timothy, as we saw. Now, is it all three that are writing this letter, or is it just one? 
It's the Apostle Paul. He's just, as we'll see, humble and, and talking about his companions in Christ who are ministering also. Because in the end of Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is the distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. He's not saying, I, Paul, Silas, and Timothy write this letter to you. He's writing it to them, but he is with Silas Savannah, as we'll see, same thing, Silas, as we'll see, and Timothy. So then notice, first of all, from this greeting, we can see that Paul was humble. He doesn't say, I, Paul, the first pope, right? He doesn't say, I, Paul, the elder of all elders. I, Paul, the senior pastor of the Thessalonian church. He doesn't say any of that. He says, Paul. Now, there are times in Scripture where the Apostle Paul has to share his authority in Christ, and there are times when those who are called to be servant leaders must do that. He will say in some other letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Not by Paul's will, but by Jesus Christ's will. And he needs to say that because an apostle has spiritual authority over the church. Apostle is foundational to build the foundation, the foundation of the apostle and prophets. But here, there was no friction between the Thessalonians and Paul. They accepted his authority. They accepted the fact that God was bringing his word through Paul. They accepted it as the word of God, not as the word of men. You see? So he doesn't need to say the apostle Paul. But you also see his humility here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. He doesn't elevate himself. He's humble. Uh, look at uh, Colossians, or no, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. And if you're, you know, just learning where things are, just listen and go come back to it later. So I don't want you to spend the whole time trying to find it and not hearing what I'm saying. But you'll learn eventually, or get the tabs to put in your Bibles. You're going to do whatever, you, whatever you're interested in, you're going to spend time on it, by the way. Believe me, if you've got interest in your life, you spend time on it. If you're interested in the Lord, you're going to spend time in His Word. So here, we see here in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. Notice what he says. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the way, that's the chief sin, by the way. Paul called himself the chief of sinners because he persecuted the church. He's persecuting Jesus. Jesus said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's the chief sin. And so he says, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored all the more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It's, 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 it's Paul, not the great Paul. It's Paul and Christ is working through Paul. And so he shares it in a very humble way. What about Galatians chapter five or chapter six? And I'll just read this for you, verses 2 and 3. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know, if, you call, if God has gifted you and he's blessing people through you, you're nothing still. It's God doing it. It's God doing it. When you serve the Lord and you bless the body of Christ in love, it is God doing it. If you think you are something, when you are nothing... You deceive yourself. It's all by grace. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4? I'll read this for you. For one says to me, I am a Paul, another of, Apo another of Apollos. Are you not mere men? Who then is Apollos? And Apollos was a good guy too, by the way. But who then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Paul says, and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Therefore, the one who plants and waters is nothing, right? Paul was humble. He was humble. And we see his humility even in the greeting, his humility. And then notice, you know, you know, you see it. I mean, you see some Bible teachers, doctor so-and-so, doctor this, there's all kinds of things and this and that. You know, whatever, you know. The reality is Paul was humble. Paul was humble. Now notice his companions. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. First of all, we see Silvanus is still with him. This is the Silvanus, uh, and he is the Silas of Acts. 
You see, Silas was probably his Aramaic name and Silvanus was his Roman or Gentile name. And so in Acts 15, we actually learn a lot about Silas. In verse 22 of Acts 15, we see that he was one of the leading men among the brethren. In Acts 15.32, we see him, Judas and Silas, among also them also being prophets, it says among themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren. I love this passage with a lengthy message. The reality is that he was also a prophet. He shared the word of God, Silas or Savannah. In chapter 15, verse 40, we see that after Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement, about John Mark, who had failed and deserted them, Paul chose Silas to accompany him on what we call his second missionary journey. Later, we see Silas became a companion and an aide to Peter. Silas is a good guy. He's a good guy. An aide to Peter. In 1 Peter 5.12, Peter calls him a faithful brother. That's, That's wonderful, and that's important. So then Silas was a good guy. Silvanus Silas, good guy in the Lord. A proven faithful brother. Could God say that of you? Maybe you're new in the faith. Be faithful in Christ. Let him be faithful through you. Let him trust in him, abide in him. If Christ is everything and he does everything through you, then you will be a faithful brother over time. But those of us who've been saved for a long time, would, would the Lord call you faithful? A faithful brother or sister? It's a lot of unfaithful people, very few faithful, but there are. And praise the Lord, because they're a blessing and give God glory with what they do. So then, we have Silas, who was a good guy. And then notice we have Timothy. Paul, Silvanus, I keep saying Silas, but it's the same guy. Silvanus and Timothy. Now we have much in the word about Timothy. And scripture reveals that he was a native of either Lystra or Derby, And those are towns in the province of Galatia. His mother was a Jew by the name of Eunice. His grandmother, Lois, his father was a Greek. He had not been circumcised until he journeyed with Paul, and that was an indication he was probably raised in a Greek and educated in a Greek culture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see that he learned the truth concerning salvation from the scriptures through his mother and grandmother. Those are good ladies. Teach the word of God to the kids. You see? And that he knew the scriptures from childhood which were able to give him the knowledge of the truth which leads to faith. Second Timothy chapter 3. Let's, let's take a look at that for a second. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy is all about bad guys here, they do this. Timothy, you stay in the word. Bad guys here, they do this. Timothy, you stay in the word. Bad guys here, they do this. Timothy, you stay in the word. That's what it is. Just an alternate of all those things throughout. Second Timothy. Chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. Hey, just go to church these days. Evil men and impostors all over the place. Just watch TV about church stuff. See it? Deceiving and being deceived. You, remember, bad guys, but you, Timothy. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from where you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God, he says. Timothy had a, had a, a wonderful grandmother and a wonderful mother who shared the Word of God with him. And he came to faith. Now, it's apparent, it's most likely, you know, it seems like that he probably came to faith when he was young. And by the time we see him come on the scene in Acts 16, he had become a proven young man, a disciple, proven young disciple. Acts 16, and when he came to Derby, that's speaking of Paul and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. That's great. Would God's word say that of you? Who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he, speaking of Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. He had a good reputation in Christ. Paul And Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they knew, all knew that his father was a Greek. So he took Timothy. He took Timothy. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Now, Paul, I don't think we understand how much, how much Paul... Uh, 
care for Timothy and how close they were in Christ. Uh, Paul calls him uh, a man of God. Um, he calls him a true child of the faith, beloved son in the Lord, his brother, his co-worker, his fellow servant, his fellow slave. He was with Paul in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. He's associated with uh, Paul in uh, some of his epistles, such as 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, and as we see here in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And we know that his letters, when Paul was, uh, he wrote his first letter to Timothy, and then we have uh, the second letter, which was Paul's last letter to Timothy. We know he was of great use because he was willing to do whatever Paul, who was led by the Lord, asked him to do. He was willing to do whatever the Lord would have him do. And we see that willingness. We see that willingness. Remember in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, he sent Timothy. He sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the, in the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. In Philippians chapter 2, we find out something very interesting about Timothy. You could turn there, Philippians 2. Paul says in verse 19, But I hope to send... Open the Lord to Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that, I also, so that I also may be encouraged and learn of your condition. Listen to this. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know of his proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy was a good guy. A good guy. So how can we apply this? Obviously, Paul was humble. As God called him to be an apostle, he was humble. Secondly, the apostle Paul took his own advice about who he hung around with, by the way. He took his own advice. The apostle Paul hung around with those who were seeking Christ. Indeed, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, you can remember that, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. So who do you hang with? Who do you hang around with? I'm not saying we don't have unbelievers as acquaintance, unbelieving family acquaintances, but we don't hang with them. We don't hang. Who are your buddies? Who are your close, intimate friends? 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't deceive yourself thinking that you're going to win them over by hanging out with them. It doesn't work that way. The nice apple doesn't win over the rotten apple. The rotten apple wins over the nice apple in the bag, Okay. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13.20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And we're to pursue uh, those things of Christ with those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. They're not perverted in how they relate to Jesus. It's a pure heart. So then, what do we really need? Well, we need to learn from Paul's humble example. We need to see how he lived his life, and look at that pattern and mimic that as we see in Scripture. But notice now, as we get into the greeting, we need to remember our position in Christ. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, we have a physical description, the church of the Thessalonians. He doesn't say the church in Thessalonica, because that's not what his point is. There are a lot of churches in different cities. But this is the church of God. It's God's church. The term church means called out ones, called out of darkness into light through Jesus Christ. And that called out group of believers is there in Thessalonica. It has Thessalonians in it. The church consisting of Thessalonian believers. The called out ones, the body of Christ. And then notice we have a spiritual description in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's God's church, church of God. You can say God's church. It's God's church. And this church of believers is in. The Greek preposition, en, it's spatial in relationships, translated in for us. It's spatial. They are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Greek, we have, we, and now in your English, you have a the there, but in Greek, there's no definite article, because the definite article is a little bit different in Greek. With no definite article, what that does is speak of the quality of what's being spoken of. 
God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So here they are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that draws our attention to their relationship with the loving and caring Father in heaven. You need to know that when you're suffering. You need to know that. You're in, you're in a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. We know that He loves us so greatly that we're children of God. He loved us so much that He sent His Son for us. The reality, it's so, so wonderful. We abide in God and in Him because, as we'll see, because of Christ. You're safe in His hands. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. You're safe. You're in God our Father. You're relationally in Him. And then he talks about, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, is significant. It's used nine times, and there are variants of it throughout the book. Nine times in three short chapters, Lord Jesus Christ. The term Lord speaks of deity, the I am. The term Jesus is his human name. It was given to him when he came to earth. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall set his people free from their sins, or they shall be forgiven from their sins, right? You see that? He shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. The term Jesus, Yahshua, means Yahweh, the Lord, saves. Yeshua. You'll name him the Lord saves. When we think of the name Jesus, his human name means the great I am saves. He's the great I am who saves. Jesus. And then we have the term Christ, which speaks of the anointed one, the Messiah, the one from the Old Testament prophesied who would reign forever and ever, who would have to suffer first, Isaiah 53, then to die for our sins, then be glorified. He's the anointed king who came and died for our sins. He's the Christ. And so we are also in Jesus Christ. We are in him relationally. What does that mean? Well, it's speaking of being in Christ, it essentially describes what it means to be saved essentially describes what it means to be saved. So, or, there we go. You see, when you, were, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You were redeemed. The payment for your sin was paid. You were baptized, not in water, but spiritually. You were placed into the body of Christ in union with Jesus Christ when you believed. You were set apart in him, sanctified. And the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your heart, Christ in you. You became his possession, bought with a great price, the precious blood of the Lamb. Thus you've been set apart from sin unto God through Christ. It's all about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in him. You're safe in him. You're safe in Christ. And in Christ there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're related to him. You're connected to him. We are put in union with his death, burial, and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here you are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would he need to tell them that? Why would he need to tell them that? Because they're suffering. And when you're suffering, you need to know where you stand with the Lord. You need to be reminded that you're in God the Father. He loves you. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are protected. You're protected. No matter how bad the persecution becomes, you are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is our life. He's our life. So when times are tough, do you realize you've been saved by Christ? You're in him. You're protected. You're united to him. Don't forget that. Well, now notice here, he now gives his greeting. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very simple salutation. Some say it's just a mechanical salutation that someone would say, grace to you, grace to you, whatever it might be. But it's not in light of uh, the Spirit of God writing it through the Apostle Paul. It's a common greeting of him, but there's meaning behind it. In every epistle or letter that Paul writes, except First and Second Timothy, to be and ten to be exact, he has the exact same greeting. Grace to you and peace. 
And then in uh, for Titus 1, it's grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. This is God's desire for the Thessalonian church. This is God's desire for you and me if you're a believer. Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. We need to know that. We need to know that. What is grace? Grace, the word charis, in its basic form speaks of an unearned gift. It speaks of something that is um, is unearned favor, unmerited favor, nothing that's done. And in Scripture we see that it's none other than an attribute of the living God. First Peter 5.10 speaks of the grace, the God of all grace, the God of all grace. God's merited favor towards mankind is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glorious as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of unmerited favor towards His people and truth. Unmerited favor. 2 Corinthians 8.9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that through His poverty you might become rich. His grace brought about Him coming to die for our sins. And that's what Titus chapter 2 says. We heard it read earlier. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. You see, grace sums up the person and work of Jesus Christ. It sums up the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's by grace. So then, God's grace is what God does for every sinful man through his son Jesus Christ that he cannot earn, does not deserve, and will never merit and if you receive his grace, you are saved. If you accept his grace, his, his will, his, he died for your sins and rose from the dead. You didn't deserve it. And you turn to Christ and believe in him. By his grace, you'll be saved. So we begin our relationship by grace. It's all God, nothing of us. And it's his favor upon us. But guess what? God wants us to walk in that grace, to function in that grace on a daily basis. You might remember in Romans chapter 5 that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God through, through having been justified, but also we've obtained our introduction, our privilege of entrance into this grace in which we stand. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in a relationship in which it's all by grace. Every minute. And Paul says, grace to you. Grace to you that you would function by his grace all the time, by his unmerited favor, his strength, rather than your own strength. The Apostle Paul truly did that. He truly did that. I read this earlier, but let me just read it again for you. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, And I'm the least of all, for I was once untimely born. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But notice what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even all the more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Christ. Christ in you, functioning in your life. That's God's grace manifest. Relying on Jesus. Allowing him to work through you. Trusting in Jesus. And Paul says, grace to you. Grace to you. In first and second Peter, where second Peter we see, may God's grace and peace be multiplied. You may be multiplied. May you trust in Christ more and more and more. May you function by his grace more and more and more. Because we have the privilege to stand in that grace. John 15, we know that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. But when we trust Jesus, his grace abounds in our lives. God wants that for you. And what gets in the way of that? Trusting in yourself, relying on your own wisdom, believing your own understanding rather than what God says. Second Corinthians 3, 5, I love this verse. Not that we are adequate to consider anything that's coming from ourselves. Now you could stop there and have a pity party, but no, keep reading. He says, but our adequacy comes from God. When I trust Christ, I'm fully adequate to do everything he calls me to do. And when I fail, I confess he's fully adequate to forgive me. He's a gracious God. What did Paul? Uh, what did the Lord say to the Apostle Paul when Paul wanted that thorn removed from his flesh, that spiritual thorn in a sense? He said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. 
My power is perfected in weakness. Don't cry about your weakness. Thank God for it. Because now you're going to trust the Lord. And it's all Christ. So back in our passage, grace to you. God wants that for you as a believer. To function by his grace. To not forget that. You were saved by it. Function by it. As we received Christ by faith, by his grace. So walk in him. But notice he also says peace. And the reality is we need peace. Our hearts can be troubled a lot over all kinds of stuff that happens, especially if, you're, if you, you, know, you, you think about the future, whatever might happen. It can be troubled. But see, peace is the result of grace. You will never have peace until you've encountered the grace of God. You see, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ by his grace, you don't have peace. There's no peace for you. But if you trust in Christ, we have peace with God positionally. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5, 1, we have peace with God. Peace. That's positional peace. No longer enmity. We have a relationship. We're in God and in Christ Jesus. But there's also peace when we trust in him as we walk. And you see, that only happens when we're relying on his grace. If you have no peace, that's because you're not relying on Christ. You see... Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do do I give you. Let your heart not be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, grace and peace doesn't come from worship. Grace and peace doesn't come from going to church. Grace and peace doesn't come from serving. It doesn't come from a book. Where does it come from? What's our passage say? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from God through Christ. If you want to have peace, rely on him. Let his grace function in your life, and you will have peace. That's God's will for believers. He doesn't want you to flounder around in fear. So often in Scripture, do not fear. Do not fear. Believe what he says. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I'll help you. Surely I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Grace to you and peace. Are you lacking peace? Well, maybe you've never experienced the grace of God. And that comes when you're willing to humble yourself and recognize you're a sinner as God says so. And he has a right to judge you and he will judge you. But he poured out his wrath on his son instead. And he offers you salvation by his grace. And if you're willing to accept what he says about you and about him and trust in him, you'll be saved. And then once we're saved, we have the privilege of entrance into this grace in which we stand. And we have a choice to stand in it and rest in it or walk away from it and have lack of peace and all the trouble. If we let God's word permeate our hearts, we believe what he said, we trust in him, you're going to have peace because you're functioning by his grace. You try to do things on your own or you try to think of a future on your own without God in control, you're not going to have peace. You look at the future in light of what God says, you're going to have peace. You look at your present in light of what he says and trust him, you're going to have peace. So grace to you and peace. That's how he starts it. That's what he wants for us. So what do we really need? We need his grace on an ongoing basis, his favor towards us, And we receive that in faith when we trust in him. And we need his peace. That's the result. And that's his desire for you and I. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you so much. I thank you that it is your desire for us to have your grace, to walk in it, to rest in it, and to have your peace. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is truly not saved. They don't have peace. We know that. Lord, you've said that. There's no peace for the wicked. Those who are in their sins are wicked in your sight. But you were gracious, Lord. And your son was gracious to do your will. To die for us. And he rose from the dead. I pray they would call upon his name for salvation and receive his grace, and be saved by grace. The grace of your Son. 
And Lord, for those of us who've been saved, we have this tremendous privilege of entrance into this grace in which we stand. Lord, remind us that we walk by faith every day and that we would trust you, that we would not rely on our own wisdom, but that we would rest in Christ, rest in your grace to do what you call us to do at home, school, at work, with relatives, relationships, everything. Church, we would rely on your grace. We're not adequate, but you are. We'd trust you. And Lord, your word promises peace. You want that for us. Your peace you give to us, not as the world. So Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray that you would help our hearts see things rightly. You'd cleanse our hearts so that we would see things rightly and walk in your grace and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.